0: Hi, Bob Wells here, and welcome to another edition of Undercurrent Stories. Have you ever looked up at the moon in the night sky? I wonder why it's there. How it was formed, and what effect it has had on us humans and animals down on Earth? Well, here to answer those questions, and many more, I'm joined by Rebecca Boyle. Rebecca is an award-winning science journalist contributing to Scientific American, The New York Times, and many other publications. She's the author of the book, Our Moon, A Human History... How Earth's celestial companion transformed the planet, guided evolution, and made us who we are. And just before we speak to Rebecca, I would like to give a special thank you to those listeners who kindly contributed to the show and sent in their own questions about the moon, some of which we'll be using in this interview. So thank you, Steve Snow, Tim Clare, Andy Wells, Steve Kai, Augie Harrison, Duncan Barker, Mike J, Axie Deck, and Guy Hearson. Thank you. Hello, and welcome to the show, Rebecca.
1: Thanks so much for having me.
0: Great to have you on.
1: Whereabouts in the States are you? I'm in Colorado Springs, so right on the side of a mountain.
0: Before we talk about the moon, could you just please tell us a bit about yourself, your life's journey, and how, how you decided to become involved in scientific journalism and the moon, please?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, I used to work for newspapers, and I've always been a professional journalist. And this is the first time i decided to kind of combine my first love, which was astronomy with my, and really the moon with my second love, which was writing. Um, I went to space camp when I was a kid and I thought I wanted to be an astronaut. But then I went to college and realized most astronauts come from the military and I didn't really want to have that background. So I studied literature instead in college. And um, I think I came at this book from just the point of view of I wanted people to appreciate the moon kind of the way that I do. And that was how I started it. And then as I did the research, I kind of came to understand that it was more than an appreciation. It was more like an argument that the moon is responsible for everything that's ever happened here, or at least very much involved. And so that's sort of the way the book turned out was that uh, it's, it's more than an appreciation, I think, at this point.
0: Yeah, and and the book came out in in the UK last week. And what what I noticed on some of the reviews and and some of the stuff that I've read is, it's a science book, but it's also you know a, a book about human history. I don't know if you've got a copy handy, but I, I love the love the poetry in it. Well, when I say the poetry, the actual writing that you do. Is there is there any chance that you could just read a paragraph just to give the listeners an opportunity to to hear what sure. the type of writing it is? Thank you.
1: Yeah, so I'll read from um, kind of the first main chapter here after the introduction the moon is different it is like nowhere on earth which is a watery bubble improbably bursting with life in a universe of emptiness the moon is barren and has been throughout the four and a half billion year eternity of its companionship with this planet the moon is silent it plays host to no cricket chorus coyote calls or night wind sailing through pines it is dry at least on the outside There are no waves lapping on shores, no soft rains, no snow. It is a crater-pocked wasteland that smells of doused firecrackers. The moon is scorching hot during its long day and freezing cold during its long night. The lunar landscape is grayscale, but flecked with shades of tan, chocolate, beach sand, chalk, gold, spicy mustard ochre, and in the words of Apollo 11 astronaut Michael Collins, a cheery rose hue. Sunlight on the airless moon plays tricks on human eyes, warping a moonwalker's sense of crater depths and hillside angles, making tiny slopes look like vertiginous peaks. All is monotony. There is no blue and there is no green. No sunlight scatters through a watery atmosphere. No lichens splotch the moon's rocks. No bacteria grow in its dirt to help plants flourish. Certainly there are no birds overhead, ants underfoot, or any other kind of animal anywhere. On the moon, there is nothing and no one. Until the Apollo landings, no creatures ever looked up at the moon's black sky and wondered about their place in it all. No one ever stared up at the crescent Earth and thought about visiting. There is no culture except the one we brought. The moon says nothing for itself, but it says plenty about us. We project our dreams and our fervor onto its modeled surface, and it serves as a mirror, both figuratively and literally. It reflects sunlight and even Earth's own light. Ash and Earth shine back to us. We can see this phenomenon when the moon is a crescent, and yet its full disc is just barely perceptible. The moon is Earth in inverse, a desolate rock whose scars whisper of our world's violent past and underscore its riotous gardens of color and life. The moon contains only what we imagine it to contain. It harbors only what we birth in its seas.
0: It's beautiful. Um. Obviously, a lot, a lot of the book is to do with the, the influence that the Moon has had on mankind and the evolution of civilization, our history, science, philosophy, religion, etc, etc, etc. But would you mind if we just talk about the Moon itself? Um, just I mean, I, th- I think most of us know a little bit about the Moon. We know it's roughly a quarter of a million miles away and stuff like that. but can I just ask a few questions in relation to the moon?
1: Yes. How was, it, how was the moon formed? So this is one of my favorite stories in the book because we don't actually really know, which I think is crazy. I mean, that sort of blows my mind. Like, it's the moon. Shouldn't we know how it arrived here and how, we, how it was made? And we have the basic outlines of that story. And, you know, we know a few things had to have happened for it to end up in the moon and the earth that we have now. But we don't know exactly what went down. So we think that something the size of Mars probably hit the early Earth, early in its history, like maybe a half a billion years after Earth was formed, if that. And both planets were completely destroyed. So there wouldn't be any evidence of this in like a crater because there would be no crater. (laughs) There would be nothing left but dust. And somehow both of these planets recombined and recoalesced into the moon and the Earth that we have now. But we don't know exactly the particulars of this because it was such a violent event. It's so unique in the solar system. There's nothing else like this anywhere else that we found. And so we don't really understand how it all happened. We don't know what led the moon to combine sort of farther away from earth. Why didn't it just result in one big planet? Why didn't it result in maybe one planet and a whole bunch of moons we don't actually know <laughs> um, but something very violent had to happen um, to result in the two paired worlds that we have now
0: okay so so they at one point they were attached so the moon has sort of come from earth in some way
1: yes i mean so it was it was more like they were they were two separate things and the separate thing is called theia this impactor that hits the earth early on both theia and earth are totally obliterated And somehow combine, you know, again, the dust and their remains coalesce into these two worlds, but they're the same material. So this is one thing that we learned from Apollo. Initially, it looked like the rocks that came back from the moon were very different from earth rocks, and they look different. They have a very different color. They look very jagged. They're rocky. They're they're crystalline. They're sort of, you know, blocky, where most earth rocks are this weathered, kind of softened around the edges. Nothing like the moon is like that. And we thought they were kind of different. But then in the early 2000s, scientists looked at the Apollo rocks again with just better instruments and more updated technology. And they realized that chemically, like down to the level of the atoms in the rocks, the moon and the earth are almost identical Which doesn't make that much sense (laughs) because if the moon is the remains of Theia, this impactor, it should look different from Earth. You know, things that form, we know things that form around the sun form in different ways and form in different times because of how they cool down. Like this is just sort of basic chemistry, the way things condense from a hot gas. So the rocks that are on Mars, you can tell are very different from the rocks on Earth. You can look at a Mars rock and know immediately it's from Mars versus from Earth. But the moon does not do that. The moon looks very similar. So very special things would have had to happen for Earth and the moon to form from the same stuff at the same time and the same place. And that's why we have this idea that whatever giant impact happened, you know, didn't just like calve Earth away the way that a glacier calves into an iceberg. You know, it, it was more complete than that. And the yes. two worlds that we have now sort of were fundamentally remade in that process.
0: You mentioned there about similar rocks to the, to, to Earth. I mean, I, I immediately think of rocks like granite, limestone. Are they those sort of rocks on the moon or are they, are they totally different?
1: There are granites on the moon. And, you know, in the, in the sense that there are just like bedrock basement rocks that the way that Earth yes. makes them. Um, but most, you know, earth rocks are, are different. I mean, the, there are sedimentary rocks on earth, which form from, you know, lake beds or seabeds over time, sediments falling down onto them and compressing. And there are igneous rocks, which are born sort of in the innards of earth. That's how most moon rocks were formed. And there are metamorphic rocks, which are the other two rocks that are sort of combined and changed in the crucible of time. And the moon does not have processes like that. The moon does not have any plate tectonics or any geologic cycle anymore. It probably had, you know, a, a more soft interior and a molten core at some point early in its history, but it's long since cooled off. And there's no activity anymore inside or outside on the moon that could change its rocks. So they look sort of like if you could imagine what original, you know, first generation earth rocks would have been like, that's what the moon rocks are like. And that's one thing that makes the moon interesting, actually. It's it's a it's a way of studying early Earth because of that.
0: And and you mentioned there that the rocks on the moon would be the sort of rocks that we've got inside our planet deeper down.
1: The way that Earth makes rocks is it you know it has a sort of soft mantle um, underneath our crust, and it's not soft in the way that it's like you know pudding, or like it's it's um, you know flows like we would think of, but it's more like maybe candle wax, where it's soft but it's solid if that makes sense. And um, yes, that sure. sort of does flow. And over you know, m- eons that are impossible for humans to really fully grasp, these rocks are sort of forged into solid material and Earth brings them to the surface through its plate tectonics, which no other planet has. Um, it's one of the things that makes Earth very unique. And there's a very small but not an insignificant chance that the moon is related to that process actually um this is the thing that sort of keeps earth alive it's what gives us volcanoes and mountains and you know the continents and the way that they move around and change their shape over time um all of those yes. processes lead to the earth rocks that we would recognize but none of the moon rocks are made in that sort of way so it's it's very different
0: one, one of the things that's um, always intrigued me and I, i've never really had a A proper answer. I've got my own ideas for it. Is is the way? I mean, we we talk about Earth and and the planets and the moon being spherical. I know they're not totally, you know, mathematically exactly that, but they they are they are basically spheres. What if the if Earth and the moon were formed out of this sort of? I'll I'll use the word Big Bang, but I know it's not the Big Bang, but a a collision.
1: How yeah, a Big Bang
0: (laughs) rounded. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, how have they become rounded and, and spherical?
1: So this is like a just a fundamental concept of planetary science that something with enough self-gravitation... I, I like fundamentals,
0: will... Rebecca. I do like fundamentals. Yeah, okay.
1: <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, so this is like a kind of a bedrock principle that something that has enough gravity will self-condense into a sphere, which okay. is kind of the most... I mean, it was considered the most perfect shape by even the ancient Greeks. Aristotle thought of the spheres as perfect shapes Um, because they're, they're, you know, they're round, which is a a sort of a perfect ideal form, but also um, it's their gravity pulls on themselves inwardly from all directions at the same time and in the same strength. And so ultimately that just sort of imagine it kind of collapsing (laughs) Into a ball, you know, and at some point it's condensed enough, and it's so dense that there's nowhere else for it to go, and it sort of just is a hole, and um, a hole. I mean, in, in meaning w h o l e, um, like it's yeah. it's a contained sphere, and um, that's just sort of a a principle that of, of things that are this size, and so this is actually a thing that. is still under debate among astronomers about whether Pluto is a planet. Um, The little, the small, you know, ninth world beyond the sun was demoted from planet status um, about almost 20 years ago now, because it's not quite round and it doesn't orbit in the same way that other planets orbit the sun. And, you know, one of the main characteristics of a planetary body is roundness and its ability to sort of clear its neighborhood of other debris, other crumbs. And um, the moon and the Earth have done that. So the, the moon is, I mean, Pluto is not any bigger than the moon. The, the moon is actually huge relative to Earth, which is another really interesting feature of it. And, and No other planet has a moon like this. There are plenty of mooned planets. You know, Jupiter has like 80. I mean, we, we just found a new one. I think a few months ago, so maybe eighty-one now, at Jupiter, um, and you know Saturn and Uranus and Neptune all have lots of moons, but they're really tiny compared to their host planets. They're like little crumbs. Our moon is one fourth the width of Earth. You know, it's it's really really large relative to the planet, and so that's another thing that makes them both unique. Is it about two hundred and fifty thousand miles away from Earth? Yes, that's an average because it does not orbit in a circular pattern; it orbits in an ellipse which we learned from, from Kepler, you know, in the 1600s, this is, I have this a whole thing about this in the book too, um, how Kepler determines yeah. planetary orbits are not circular. Um, so yeah, this is the phenomenon that gives us a supermoon when it's closer in that orbit than um, than normal. And so the average distance is 238,000 miles, but sometimes it's 224, or, you know, 241, maybe, you know, th- that sort of, give or take a few thousand miles. Um, it draws closer and draws further away through its month.
0: And, and is it fairly settled where it is or is it coming nearer or is it get, going further away in time?
1: What's it doing? It is moving further away. Yeah. This is, oh, I, was I mean, it? I'm sorry to report that the moon is leaving us. <laughs> um, oh. It is, it has always been leaving us and it always will be. Um, you know, it's, it's tied to earth through, the gravitational attraction of both worlds and it's it's actually really complicated tidal physics that I don't claim to totally understand because the equations are kind of beyond my <laughs> my scale um, but yeah the moon is leaving it is and this is something we've measured actually on the apollo missions they brought some essentially mirrors and they left them on the moon And there are experiments on Earth that still now bounce a laser off those mirrors and measure the time it takes to return. And um, that's how we can measure the lunar distance. And so we know that it's changing and it's moving away over time. And because of that, we also know that the length of the day is changing. So Earth's day is getting longer because our rotation is slowing down as a result of the moon moving away from us. Um, so it'll be a long time before we have to worry about this, but eventually, you know, in a few million years, tens of millions of years, it will be so far away that it will no longer be able to totally eclipse the sun.
0: And do we know, I know it's a very difficult question and there's lots of physics involved and all the rest of it, but, but do we know in terms of a very simple question every year, how, how much longer that year is becoming with, with, you know, how, how much longer the day is? Is it milliseconds or?
1: It's, it's, it's like, yeah, fractions of milliseconds over time. Yeah. Um, but you know, 400 million years ago, the day was about 20 hours long and now it's 24 and a few minutes long. (laughs) Um, and so over time it will be 25 hours, 26 hours, you know, but that's in the far future. It's, it's milliseconds a year most there is an equation for this and this is a, a debate actually among scientists what's the precise change is it's called delta t <laughs> and um there's this value that is is expresses the rate at which earth's day is lengthening and this is a this is actually still like a problem in science people are trying to nail that down yeah not
0: not one for us to worry about at the moment on earth though
1: yeah we don't have to worry about that yet <laughs> It's, you know, in millions of years after humans are gone or have, you know, been uploaded into AI or something, then it will be, yeah. it'll be very different, but that's not our problem.
0: What One of the, the thoughts I had when I was doing the research for this, um, show was, was that I was thinking, I'm assuming that gravitational force of the earth is obviously, um, more strong, is stronger than what the gravitational force is in on the moon, um, I was half thinking that the moon might be being dragged towards us because of gravity, but obviously not. Yeah. It's it, uh, balanced out and going further away.
1: Yeah. I mean, that's a logical thing to think, you know, and if if that were true, that would be very bad for us. <laughs> um, if the moon was being dragged closer to here, then that would be catastrophic for earth. But um, this is a, one of the parameters that helps scientists understand its formation actually is the rate at which it's moving away from us because we know that, whatever caused the formation of the moon was moving very fast as earth is through space. Um, I have to look up the value right off the top of my head. I'm not sure how quickly we're moving, but we're moving at an absurdly fast speed around the sun and the sun itself is moving very quickly around the Milky way. Um, These are speeds that are hard to really kind of imagine. Once they become astronomical, it's sort of hard to like grasp, but the moon is, whatever made the moon was flying toward earth at an incredible speed. Earth was also moving very fast and the violence of this collision splattered apart both of these things, but they didn't stop traveling. And so as the moon formed kind of separate from the earth in the same, likely in the same cloud of droplets of dust and gas it still kept moving away, <laughs> essentially, and so it still is. It's still spiraling away from us, and um, it will always be that way. It will, it will never return um, from whence it came.
0: One thing I'm very keen to talk about is man's civilizations or the moon's impact on civilization. Um, if you take us back in time before man came into the world, um, what influence did the moon have once? It had sort of been driven away, formed a sphere. What sort of influence did it have on Earth? And um, Earth, when I say Earth, I mean life on Earth.
1: I think it was a very profound influence, and I think this is still only beginning to be appreciated. So we don't really know exactly how life originated, but we think it happened in the oceans, either in deep ocean ridges where the Earth's mantle meets the water, and there's this interesting exchange of heat and chemicals, or maybe in tidal pools at the at the edge of the water, where the water again met the crust, but you know cooler temperatures and, and exposure to the sun and radiation. Um, we don't really know. Those are the two kind of prevailing theories. But either way, the moon would have played a huge role in in fostering that adapt you know the, those adaptations, because either it was dragging early life forms from the seafloor up into the water column higher up or it was creating the tidal pools that life may have used to first form and to first differentiate. And, uh, you know, so either, no matter what, the moon played a huge role in the very, very beginnings of life. And I was surprised working on the book, the extent to which the moon plays a role in vertebrate evolution. So backboned animals, this is actually very recent research. Um, But as we mentioned before, the moon is, 400 million years ago, the moon was closer and the day was shorter. And so the tide would have been more powerful at that time because the moon was nearer and its strength would have been more – it would have been a higher pull on our oceans. So the tide would have been more extreme. And some scientists decided to look at this and to figure out where on earth, you know, were the tides very extreme and did this correlate with the emergence of animals onto land? And it turns out that it does – um, the, the tides around 380 million years ago in the Devonian period would have been extreme in a few areas on earth. And these are the same areas where we find the first trackways. So the first like footprints of land animals and the first fossils that represent this transition between living on the water and living on the land, um, and this is around this time is when Pangaea is starting to form. So this is the supercontinent that gives rise to the dinosaurs and is kind of the famous, you know, mains, the, the most famous supercontinent in the supercontinent cycle that we have. Um, but because this is happening, ocean basins are starting to close. So you have these very narrow inlets of water and the moon being closer, the water being, you know, kind of more extreme, tides would have been really, really extreme from high and low tide. So if you're a fish, you know, on a shoreline in shallow water, the water is flowing away from you at, you know, feet per minute, like it is rushing out or rushing in. And so you'd better be able to adapt to that. And if it's rushing out, either get back to the water or learn how to breathe the air. And walk on the land, move your body across the sand instead of through the water. And that's what happened. Um, and we know that's what happened because of fossils like Tiktaalik is the, probably the most famous transitional fossil between fish that dwell in the water and, and amphibians that dwell on the land. And this is the same time frame, basically, that this is happening. So we know that the moon would have played a huge role in fostering the evolution of complex life on land that's an incredible fact yeah i don't think this has been really well understood i mean this is like some of this research was was published in 2020 (laughs) so this is very recent and um it's in part because of newly possible really detailed tide models you know so we have paleo oceanographers working on this looking at ancient bathymetry so looking at the depth of the water in the ancient oceans and you know, just really sophisticated computer modeling was able to piece this together.
0: What sort of evidence do we have of early man's recognition of the moon, and what what did he/she use it for when they first arrived?
1: The first thing that I think humans would have used it for would be timekeeping, um, and as a practical use. You know, there are a lot more. I have a lot more discussion in the book about how people used it for devotional purposes too. But that would have become later. So. I mean, some of the earliest cave paintings in France and in, in Germany and Spain and in now in um, in uh, Indonesia show this sort of relationship that ancient humans had with the sky, where they're they're depicting animals a lot of times, but they're also depicting stars and maybe the moon and lunar cycles and lunar months. So, like, the, the time it takes for the moon to return to the sky again is one month, which is why we call it a month. <laughs> it comes from an Eng- old English word called moon. Um, and people were using this to be able to track the seasons and to be able to figure out when animals were going to be having their young or when you would need to be hunting certain kinds of types of prey or game. And I think this early, early on like 30,000 years ago in early human, um, like modern human history, you see this connection to the moon as a way of telling time and kind of orienting ourselves in time so as far as we know humans are the only species that do this you know I mean like squirrels can can plan by putting nuts away for the winter or something but that's not quite the same as a human sitting there and saying six moons from now I'm gonna go on vacation or I'm gonna six moons from now is when the salmon are gonna be running and I need to go and make a net and and get there in time to catch some fish to feed my family you know And I think the moon is really what enabled people to do that before written language. And it it sort of gives us this sense of ourselves in time and space in a way that nothing else can. The sun comes and goes every day and we can track the solstices throughout the year and we can track the seasons, you know, you know when the trees are starting to put leaves out in the spring, it's time to maybe be able to find young animals to hunt, you know, and there's, kind of basic seasonal information that people can use which is obvious but the moon changes every night it looks different on the time scales that we live our lives you can say to somebody when the moon is half full i will meet you at this location you know and, and do this transaction or or have this meeting or anything you know Anything you could imagine people needing to do before the time of mathematics and before the time of written language, yes. the moon was a really powerful tool for early humans.
0: One question I've got on that is: is the dynamic between because the moon's every twenty-eight days?
1: Yes. So yeah, it's it's about twenty-nine and a half days technically. Yeah. <laughs> is the the lunar cycle synodic month?
0: Yeah. Well, according to my maths, it doesn't make three hundred and sixty-five days. So would you, would you better explain? True. Yeah, the the dynamic on the difference between sort of, I suppose it's the sea, the sun's year and the moon. Yeah, the solar year, the, solar
1: year, the tropical year. Yeah, so sorry, and the, the solar lunar year, year. Yeah, yeah. are different. Yes. yes, yeah. This is so. In the book, I have a whole chapter about this and and how people kind of figure this out early on across cultures on Earth, across time on Earth. People figured out different ways to combine these years, you have to kind of marry them in a way that's very complicated. So yeah, there are about 12 lunar cycles in a solar year. But 12 lunar cycles is 354 days. And a solar year is 365.25 days. So that's a 12 day difference. So if you use a calendar that's based on lunar cycles, you're going to be off by, you know, within a couple of years, your, your solar calendar has yes. fallen out of sync with that. So if you use the moon to say, oh, and the eighth moon of the year is our harvest festival. Well, a couple of years later, it's going to be like the middle of the growing season, you know, like you, you need to yeah. be able to figure that out and reset your calendar. Um, and, you know, cultures across earth had ways of doing this. And I think ultimately the people who figured these things out and either controlled the methods or the tools used to synchronize these two calendars end up being very powerful people. Because, you know, if you're the guy who controls the calendar, you control society, you control the timing of events, you control the timing of, of markets and business, you know, and ceremonies and even weddings and things like that. And so if you have the skills and the knowledge and, you know, the, the physical tools needed to do this, you would have been a very powerful person, and that's and we see evidence of that throughout the Bronze Age, um, especially. But also, I mean, the Maya figured out that there were different lunar and solar cycles and had different interlocking calendars that were able to combine these things. The Pharaohs in Egypt figured this out and used the stars instead to synchronize their year. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, it, it was it was very complicated to do, and and people who figured it out had to be very good at astronomy. <laughs> and, um, you know, sometimes they needed a device or a place to go to be able to make this calculation. And so those devices and those places would have been very powerful. It's
0: got me thinking on the, um, we've obviously got Stonehenge in, in the UK and there, there, are, there are other hinges around the world. Um, are they, is there any evidence that any of these types of um, Henges are related to the moon rather than the sun, or is it all the sun?
1: Yes. There are a lot that are lunar. <clears throat> there's some evidence that Callanish in Ireland is a lunar monument, but the most obviously lunar ones are in northeastern Scotland. Um, throughout Aberdeen, there are a bunch of these monuments, these recumbent stone circles. There are a lot of them, and they all have this defining feature that there's either 12 or 13 standing stones like that you'd have at Stonehenge, you know, these large kind of monoliths in a circle, but there's also a sideways laying stone, a recumbent stone. And those are almost always oriented to the Southwest. And it's thought that these were lunar monuments and that people use them maybe as a place to communicate with other neighboring clans or to conduct ceremonies maybe to to have funerals, you know, funeral pyres. Um, there's a lot of evidence of burning inside these circles from dating to thousands of years ago. And they've been used and, you know, even really still are used in a way. You can still visit them and walk in them and, and marvel at them. And there are signs describing them and trying to understand what they're used for. And these are almost all, considered to be lunar monuments and not just solar monuments. And they may have been used to do the same thing we're talking about with combining the lunar and the solar year. Um, but some of that's a yes. little bit more open to interpretation.
0: On the um, the moon's influence on on the tides, what about the moon's sort of impact on on us as human beings? You know, people talk about people having the full moon influence and things like that with vampires and and stuff like that. Yeah. In, did, yeah. yeah. Um. From a, from a scientific point of view, I guess you know it's not some subject that really, um. Is you know I wouldn't think an awful lot of time is devoted to it. But in the research that you did, um, what were your thoughts on on the impact that the moon has on people and animals, for that matter?
1: It has a profound impact on animals and on plants, actually, which I was surprised to learn. Um, and I think because of that, and we know that that's true, that we should assume that it has some influence on us too. You know, I think we've we've come away from the era of, you know, lunatic asylums which literally is derived from the moon. Lunatic is lunacy comes from luna, the Latin word for the moon. And so people really did think that the moon was changing behavior and changing people's mental state. And we've moved away from that, you know, belief in modern life, but I think it's actually probably not untrue and there's quite a lot of medical research about this and it's the thing is it's really hard to separate the signals you know we have so many hormones in the water supply we have other pressures like artificial light at night you know a 24 hour cycle of information and and shift work all these things that affect our mental health and our behavior so it's hard to really say that oh the moon is why but there is some evidence that it does play a role in our biology. There were a few papers I have in here that talk about during full moon cycles it they coincide with episodes of mania and bipolar patients, so people experience more manic episodes, and this may be because you know people don't sleep as well and the moon's really bright, there may be some gravitational effect we don't really understand um, and so yeah, I think it's it's it shouldn't be dismissed outright that the moon plays a role in our, our psychology even now, even though it is, it's harder to prove that. <laughs> um, it's, it's difficult to sit there and say like, there's no other reason why this person has this episode of mania, you know, but there are a few studies that have done this. Um, and there are studies that look at things like, you know, the incidence of aneurysm and stroke increase during full moons and new moons, which is when the moon and the sun and the earth are aligned. So the moon's gravity is sort of amplified by the sun. And, you know, yeah, I think that there's there's a lot of legitimate evidence that suggests the moon is playing some role in human biology, even now. And we know that it does in animals, you know. I mean, I have an example in the book of um, wildebeest in Africa. They time their migrations uh, according to the moons that happen after the winter solstice. And they have to calve at the right time so that their calves can migrate with them these huge distances and if they don't give birth at the right time the calves are too weak to take the journey and and end up being eaten by crocodiles or other predators you know so wildebeest time their reproduction according to the cycles of the moon and we know that corals do this you know tiny little sea lice these little like marine worms little tiny organisms in the ocean all use the moon to coordinate their reproduction and wow. their, the timing of their biology. And so, I, you know, I don't think it's, we're, we're not divorced from that either. I don't believe.
0: You did the research for your book. You might, I mean, you may have already had some surprising facts, but are, are there any, did you, did you discover anything of real interest that you didn't know before um, that you'd like to share with listeners, Rebecca?
1: One thing I did not know that I, I'm still kind of shocked by is the work of this Scottish botanist named Peter Barlow, who died in 2017, but he dedicated a lot of his career to studying the influence of the moon on plants. And he published, you know, a dozen studies looking at all these different effects that the moon has on things like leaf, leaf growth, the way that leaves of plants emerge and the direction that they turn is influenced by the moon's gravity the way they put down roots um, has an, is influenced by the moon. He even was able to get an experiment on the space station before he died. And, um, I mean, he didn't go, but the astronauts on the space station did an experiment where they measured the, the root movements and the leaf movements of seedlings over time, like using time-lapse cameras. And the effect was the same in space. So even in microgravity, the plants knew where the moon was, essentially, wow. which I found shocking. You know, I've never heard that before. And it sounds like kind of, you know, almost silly, like new agey, like biodynamic growth, you know, which you sort of hear about in, in some wineries in California is becoming more of a thing. But it sounds like it's actually legitimate. And, you know, there was a whole body of research about this that was this one scientist sort of lifelong project. And I I was blown away by the level of detail and the level of influence he was able to find that the moon has on planets.
0: One one question I've got to do with the moon and, and Earth. Could we live without if, if the if the moon suddenly went away a lot quicker than what you'd said earlier on? Yeah. <laughs> um could we how, how long or could we live without it for a long period of time? or how long would it take for us not to be able to exist? do you think?
1: It would be a bad thing for us and for everything else on earth and there are a few reasons why. I mean the just the sort of you know repeating tidal cycles would really disrupt the oceans. The sun has some influence on the tide, so it wouldn't be like the oceans were just flat and still forever, but the tide would be way, way weaker. And that would be very interesting for the, you know, marine life that that relies on the tide. It would, would things like corals, like we were talking about who literally time their mating according to full moons, what would be their signal anymore? You know, we don't know. Um, But more broadly, the moon is sort of a guardian of Earth in certain ways. So its gravity and its proximity keeps Earth's rotational axis fairly stable over time. And that keeps our climate fairly stable over time. And I think if if we didn't have the moon, Earth's axis could tilt quite a lot. And we know this because this is what happens on other planets. So Mars, for instance, has this really wild wobble of its axis. So sometimes, right now, actually, Mars has roughly the same axial tilt as Earth. So it's about 23 and a half degrees. That's what gives us here and on Mars the seasons. But over time, Mars sometimes is pointed, you know, 40 degrees on its axis. So imagine like, you know, Jupiter gravitationally sort of elbowing it, knocking it over. That would happen here too. And if you had Earth's axis tilted at 40 degrees, imagine that what that would do to the ice caps at the poles, you know, it would, the sun would be suddenly shining the way it does near to the tropical latitudes. And all of a sudden, yes. you'd have a lot of melting ice and rising sea levels and huge disruptions to our climate. And so, I think if we didn't have the moon, it would be Earth would be a very different planet in a lot of ways. So
0: the moon's been very good to us over time, hasn't it?
1: Yes, <laughs> we are lucky we, to have we, it. We should care.
0: Yeah, well, we should care care for the moon, which is sort of segue into the next few questions I'd like to ask about um, humans and and the moon going forward. I mean, you know, it's been. I remember actually watching the. 19, I was quite young, but the 1969 moon landing um, in the UK, I think it was probably two or three in the morning and it was, it was quite, quite fantastic. Yeah. Um, but we're talking, we're talking a long time ago now. Why, why do you think it, why is it that we haven't been back?
1: I think there's a few reasons. And I think one is sort of the fundamental fact that, you know, we did it. <laughs> it's, it's no yeah. longer a first and we've, we've transcended that barrier and, it's a barrier that had existed for all of human history and it was knocked down. You know, we walked on the moon, we saw ourselves from afar for the first time and it, it, it can't be that profound again, you know, that, that's sort of the first and only time that that change could happen. But I also think it's just, it's difficult to do. And I think people sometimes take it for granted in part because of science fiction, you know, like we get used to this concept of time traveling through planets and galaxies but it's actually impossible. And even leaving Earth at all is is still very hard. And we did it a long time ago for the first time, but the physics hasn't changed. <laughs> it's still difficult. And it's just complicated to do. And it's very expensive. I think also there's the geopolitics behind it. You know, we went to the moon because of the space race with Russia. And that's sort of that version of the Cold War, I guess, <laughs> is no more. And so we don't really have the geopolitical motivation that we had in the 60s and, you know, that being the reason for the big expenditure. So I think yep. that's another thing. We we don't have a reason to go that's to prove that we can do it, to beat somebody else there. Um, but, you know, we are starting to have efforts to get back. And I think it's probably yes. going to happen pretty soon. I, you know, NASA has yes. Artemis program, which is the sister of Apollo in Greek mythology, and the goal is to land the first woman on the moon and now the the target date is September of 2026 as the so next long, human it? landing it's not yeah. you know yeah. and i think that will probably change that that date's probably nearer in the future than is realistic but um i think it's i do think it will happen by the end of this decade and i think you know nasa will not be the only ones i think china is very interested in landing taikonauts up there india landed a rover for the you know, a few months ago now, Japan just landed a new lander just a few days ago and becoming the fifth country on Earth to land safely on the moon. So there's a lot of interest in getting up there again. And I think it's going to start happening pretty quickly. And I don't think people may be aware of how much that's already happening.
0: Do you think that it'll be a lot quicker to get there now compared with the Apollo missions, or, or do, do you think they reach the optimum speed from Earth?
1: Well, it's just so it's so far away that it just takes a few days. You know, if you you have to get to very high speeds and a lot of power to create the energy you need to get off Earth and out of Earth's gravity. So you have to go very fast, but then you have to go to a complete stop. <laughs> so it's hard to do. It took Apollo about three days to get there. Um, the current missions are taking between a week and several weeks depending on how they organize their orbits so the new nasa orbit is very interesting it's this sort of looping path um, that kind of uses earth's gravity as an assist to slow down and it takes a lot longer to get there it takes a couple weeks and so yeah i think there's there's still a lot of Orbital dynamicists working on this to figure out the best and most optimal way to get people there safely and quickly, but it's going to take time, no matter what.
0: So, so it it sounds like it's more about the the most efficient, safe way to get there rather than getting there in three days.
1: Yeah, I mean, Apollo got there in three days because it was more of a straight shot. Still not quite a straight shot. There was this; they had to use Earth's gravity as a slingshot to kind of get them to a faster speed, and then they enter lunar orbit and have the moon's gravity kind of capture them and slow them down. Um, and it took a few days to do all of that. Now it's more like, can we use earth's gravity to slingshot us in between the earth and the moon? There's eventually going to be a space station NASA is designing called the gateway, which will be in cislunar space. So between here and the moon where astronauts could, you know, fly off earth, go to this space station as a sort of middle Stopping ground, and then land on the moon, go back to the space station. Um, so yeah, I think it's it's more about designing like what's the most efficient way and and maybe the safest way to get people there.
0: Talking to one of my um, friends about this this interview, and um, he said to me, "Do you think more?" He, he wanted me to ask you, "Do you think more astronauts have been there than we know about? I.e., have there been any secret missions? Do you think?" <laughs>
1: I don't think so, in part because it would be very hard to launch a powerful enough rocket without someone noticing. Um, you know, we we were, even during the Cold War, we knew what Russia was doing, launching their rockets, testing nuclear weapons because of the disruption that happens in the atmosphere. And even just on the Earth itself, you have geophysical monitoring stations that are looking for things like the rumble of a, a nuclear bomb going off. In part because of treaties that we had during the Cold War. And that's still the case. And we have now a network of satellites watching the entire globe, you know, and a lot of that is beyond my knowledge of classified information. So but I'm very confident that if if another country had landed up there, we would know about it. And and you know, they would have wanted us to know. It would have been a huge accomplishment. And I think it would be it would be a strange thing to keep secret from the rest of humanity because it would be such an achievement. I think anybody would want to be able to share bragging rights about that.
0: I have to ask a conspiracy theory question. How would you convince a modern day internet conspiracy theorist that the moon landings were not faked? I'm sorry to put you on the spot.
1: <laughs> no, I mean, it's funny because, you know, I think this is a, a function of this sort of era of disinformation that we live in right now where people don't trust authority, They don't want to trust reality. They don't, you know, they, they are suspicious of anything that is sort of received wisdom. And I think part of that is something to respect, you know, we should all be skeptical, but I mean, doubting an event as momentous as this, I don't think serves much purpose. And But I will say that I have a little bit of empathy for it because it is such a strange thing (laughs) that we did. I think if you really step back for a minute and just think about Apollo, what a weird decision, you know, we're just going to go up there and walk around because, because we can, and we want to show that we can, we want to prove to some other guy that we can. It's kind of strange. It's, it's a really fundamentally odd thing to have done to send these young men up there on a exploding chemical rocket and to have them hit golf balls. (laughs) You know, it's part of me is still kind of like, why, what, why did we do that? And so I I have some empathy for people who are, who question whether that actually happened because it is so bizarre and so transformatively strange. Um, But I mean, I've seen the rocks and, you know, I think I'm, I'm not, I don't believe in conspiracy theories as a general no. rule, but I'm I'm convinced that the moon landings did take place and that they're something we should yeah. all be very proud of.
0: Yeah, me too. Um, and, and looking to the future, we, we talked about there's almost like a sort of new space race with India and Japan and and the US looking at doing something. Um, how long do you think it will be before there'll be tourism on the moon?
1: I don't think it will be very long. Um, I think – you know, it, it's difficult, it's expensive, it's very dangerous. Um, you know, there's a lot of reasons why it's not the best idea. Um, but I think there's a lot of people who are interested in doing that. And I think it's probably going to be happening in the next few years. Um, I think yeah. the success or not of the Artemis program is going to be interesting in terms of that. Because, you know, if, if NASA has a hard time pulling it off with, you know, national support and Not very big budgets anymore, you know, but still some federal money and they're investing in this. If they can't make it work, I think it will be difficult to argue that a private company will make it work to send humans. But I do think private companies will be going up there and they are now. I mean, we had a launch two weeks ago in the US of the first commercially funded Moonlander and it did not make it because the, the launch went well. Everything went well. And as the the lander separated from the rocket, it had a fuel issue and it was leaking fuel and tumbling in space. And they were able to correct it a little bit, but they didn't have enough fuel to land safely on the moon. So they decided to turn it around and it burned up in Earth's atmosphere a few days ago, which is a real bummer for everybody involved in this project. But you know, it, there, there's another one launching in a couple of weeks. And uh, after yeah. that, more. So I don't yeah. think... It will slow down anytime soon. And I think it's only a matter of time before you see humans trying to get up there for tourism. There's been a lot of talk
0: about about the sort of possible valuable resources on on the moon um, with a view to using them. And I'm assuming bringing them
1: back to Earth. What are your thoughts on that? So this, some of this is a little further afield than I think people – you know, maybe want to acknowledge or, or even fully understand. And sometimes it's things like, oh, there's lots of helium-3, which is the volatile form of helium, which can be used in a nuclear reactor, you know, on Earth or in space. And, you know, that's sort of up for debate. Uh, the, the primary thing the moon has, which would be of interest, is water. And it's it's not lakes and oceans like we have here, but it's more in the form of hydrated minerals and then probably some ice in the floors of some craters that never see the sun. And the reason for that, why that would be valuable was for people who are on the moon is you could take that water and and refine it and maybe even use it for drinking or human use, or more likely refine it into rocket fuel. So if you can split the hydrogen and oxygen and water and refine it, then you've got rocket fuel. And so you don't need as much now to take with you to get back off the moon or, to go somewhere else, like maybe Mars or an asteroid, so if I think people are looking at using the moon for resources, one of them as as a you know maybe a fuel depot um, and a, a place to use as a jumping off point for elsewhere in the solar system.
0: okay, so I could use the helium three for that
1: that would be more like a power source for <clears throat> some kind of nuclear reactor that would you know provide yes. energy for use.
0: And going back on, on the water, there they're definitely obviously sequestered in rocks, but there's definitely water up there, is there?
1: There's a lot, depending on which instruments you are looking at. But yeah, there's been a bunch of studies now in the past um 10, 15 years looking at lunar water. And it seems to be a lot of it. You know, we we don't know the form exactly. we haven't found like a deposit, you know, like an aquifer like we'd imagine on Earth. But that's it's possible that those are there. And this is one of the main goals of the next few fleets of lunar landers They're looking at um, looking for water so NASA's launching a rover potentially by the end of this year, but we'll see uh, called Viper and it's looking for water that's its entire mission is to go prospecting to look for water deposits at the moon's south Pole
0: I guess the um, impact of of if we did go up there, the impact one of the impacts would be creating dust, moon dust, uh, because I've seen pictures of you know if you, if you if you're up there and you walk walk along the moon's surface, uh, you can kick up quite a lot of dust. Do you do you think if we do too much up there, that it could actually envelop the moon in a dust cloud?
1: It would because not the because gravity? the moon <clears throat> it doesn't have any atmosphere to carry the dust along. So what would happen is. Um, <clears throat> Over time some of the dust goes into orbit um, around the moon but it wouldn't it would have to be you know quite a lot of activity to kick up enough dust with enough energy to get it high enough to launch it into lunar orbit um, but eventually it would settle back down. you know there's there's no atmosphere to blow it around to carry it elsewhere to kind of settle it. It would just kind of fall back. Like imagine dropping a feather and just fall flat. Um, but yeah, the, the problem with dust actually is how abrasive it is. Moon dust is really sharp. It's not like dust on earth. Most dust on earth comes from really from us, you know, from human skin and hair and animals and pollen grains. And it comes from life um, or, you know, rocks and and things that are beaten down by wind and rain and hail and oceans. And there's, it's soft. It has these sort of rounded edges because a lot of it's biological in nature. Or if it's not, it's you know pulverized by the forces that Earth has, which are not on the moon. There is no wind on the moon. There's no crashing waves. There's no plate tectonics that reshape rock over time. So every bit of moon dust is like a jagged little knife. <laughs> and it's very abrasive to breathe it in it drove the astronauts crazy it's so fine it's almost like baking flour you know it's very powdery so it sticks to everything it sort of has a static cling it gets in every crack every crevice of your spacesuit of your spacecraft it's going to be a huge problem actually i think people who imagine going to the moon and living up there working up there probably are not aware of how much of a hazard the dust is going to be. It's going to be probably the biggest challenge we face.
0: That's interesting. And, and how dangerous is it? Have they done any tests on it to see how dangerous it is?
1: It's not dangerous in that it doesn't like, you know, have any pathogen or or any illness that would, you know, would make you sick. But the Apollo astronauts all talked about having symptoms of like a head cold, just very congested and like itchy and, and made their eyes water. And it was just very annoying to deal with when they were in their lunar landers. And who knows over time? I mean, sure, sure, it Mm -hmm. it would be, you know, we've done plenty of studies on, on mining workers on earth, for instance, who are exposed to the sort of flaky rock in their work and it can cause all kinds of lung issues and, and cancers. And, you know, I think there's a very real possibility that people who live, on the moon or who work on the moon and go back and forth even are going to have lunar dust will be a major health hazard over time
0: yes and i guess it's no difference if you're decorating you're sanding for a day you need to wear a mask otherwise you'll breathe it in and as you say you'll get that head cold and possibly worse
1: right and yeah you just you don't want to be breathing in foreign materials Mm -hmm. but on the moon it'd be hard to avoid
0: yeah okay well we've covered the health and safety aspects that's good um One last question I've got about the moon itself: the South Pole Aitken Basin. Yes, is is that featured in the book?
1: Yes. So this is the largest impact crater in the solar system, and um, it has a lot of interesting stories to tell about the moon's history and Earth's history. This is people are targeting this area for a few reasons, and one is that it's actually on the far side. You can see part of it from the near side because it's so huge, but it's on the far side of the moon, which it's really hard to access. We've landed a few spacecraft there now. We meeting humanity, China has pulled this off. Nobody else so far has pulled this off.
0: When you say the far side, is is that also the dark side of the moon?
1: It's it's not the dark side in that it's not always dark. Um, I think we've right. we've come to call it that because it's sort of culturally, you know, it's dark to us. <laughs> we can't see it. Yeah. Um, but it is illuminated. It is sunlit for part of the lunar month. Um as the moon goes around the earth, you know, the sun will shine on the dark side, on the far side. Um, but yeah, it's the dark side in that Like we don't really, we can't ever see it. The first time we ever saw it was in the 1960s when a spacecraft went around it for the first time. Um, but it is interesting too. It is a different place geologically than the, the near side that we see all the time. And we're not really sure why that is. Um, This is one reason why people want to go to South Pole-Aidkin Basin and and get some samples. And it has some permanently shadowed craters, as well as peaks of eternal light, because of the angle of the sun. Um, So it is the South Pole, and the moon is on its axis as Earth is. So it does experience somewhat of seasonal change. And in the South Pole of the moon, there are the angle of sunlight is so oblique that it doesn't shine fully ever. So there are craters in the South Polyacan Basin area that have never seen the sun. And those wow. are good places to look for things like primordial water and who knows yeah. what else. Going back to the impact, was that a massive meteorite or something? Yes. Um, and this <laughs> is another interesting story from Apollo is that, you know, look at the moon. I mean, it's there's covered in craters. It's, you know There are so many that it's, it's hard to even count. And we thought those were all primordial. But in the recent years, we've had some lunar orbiters that are up there taking pictures all the time. Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter is one of these. It's an American spacecraft that has a great camera. And it just photographs the moon all the time and just takes beautiful photos. And scientists looking at some of the new images found, have been finding new craters. And so... We have to assume that these are little meteors that are hitting the moon. And we have them ha- hit us too, but they burn up in our atmosphere. <laughs> so we don't know about all of them. Um, but the moon has no atmosphere to protect itself. So it just splats onto the surface. Yeah. And one of, those, one of the things that we thought for a long time was that the moon and the earth were battered within an inch of their life you know, about a billion years after their formation. And this is called the Late Heavy Bombardment and this is a very dramatic theory that you know some migration of jupiter and saturn sent a bunch of asteroids hurtling toward the inner solar system and just pummeled all the inner planets so mercury venus earth mars and earth's moon would have just been like wasted by asteroids over you know a few millennia and it would have sterilized earth this battering you know it would have been so horrific and Earth doesn't have any scars of this because we have plate tectonics and we have a water cycle. So Earth erases its past. The moon is not. And that's one reason why we'd like to go back and look and get more evidence of this battering. It sounds like it may not have happened, we're not sure, but it's falling out of favor because there's a theory that some of these really huge Titanic impacts, like South Pole Kim Basin, and another one called Imbrium. Uh, on the near side of the moon were so horrific that it looks like the whole moon was melted and like knocked about, but it was actually probably just one impact that we sampled during Apollo. And so as the moon is sort of confusing us about its own history um, and that's another reason to go and get more samples. Wow. I mean, we, we've been an hour
0: talking now, Rebecca, it's been fantastic. There's so many more questions that I, I'd like to ask, um, but I think I'll have to wait for the book and any listeners <laughs> who've enjoyed the conversation, I'm, I'm sure will, uh will uh, take a great interest in, in the book. Um, if, you, if there's any, any listeners out there who are, shall we say budding journalists or budding science, science journalists with the experience that you've had, what, what advice would you give them?
1: I think my best advice for anybody is to try to write about what you want to know. You know, I, it's sort of the, this adage in writing, write what you know. And I think that's so limiting. You know, if, if we only write what we know, we only write from our own experience. I think writing what you want to know is a great way to build empathy and to understand people differently and understand them better understand new concepts better, because if you want to write about them, you really need to understand them. And so writing what you want to know is a great way to get an education <laughs> on something.
0: Well, that's that's fantastic advice. Um, and I can see that obviously that's that's what you did when you wrote this book uh, and, you be, and you've become somewhat of an expert on it now. I hope so. <laughs> Where can people find out more about your work, Rebecca?
1: Um, if you go to, well, you can Google me. I have a website, RebeccaBoyle.com. I write for a Scientific American magazine, um, the Atlantic Quanta magazine. And I'm on Instagram at ByRebeccaBoyle.
0: Fantastic. Well, Rebecca, this has been a really great conversation. It's been interesting to learn more about the moon and discover how it has shaped our world and mankind since the dawn of civilization. I'll never look at the moon in the same way again. I'm glad. <laughs> My guest today has been Rebecca Boyle. Rebecca is author of the book, Our Moon, A Human History. And you can find links to the book and Rebecca's website in the show notes. Thank you for coming on the show, Rebecca.
1: Thanks so much for having me. This was fun.
0: I hope you enjoyed today's show. And please, can I ask a favour? In fact, just three little favours. Honestly, it'll take just a few minutes. Firstly, if you think some of your friends or family will enjoy the episode, please share the link with them. Secondly, visit our website, undercurrentstories.com, and sign up for our newsletter. And lastly, please leave a review for the show on Spotify or Apple, or on whatever platform you use. Really appreciate this. It helps the show grow by spreading the word, and we look forward to bringing you more Undercurrent Stories. Thank you, and take care.